Well, I want us this morning by talking about a college student named Stephanie. I don't know Stephanie. She was depicted in... Oh, hey kids, you should go. Sorry. We'll talk about Stephanie in a minute. Go have a great experience in your classes, kids. Thank you for reminding me. We're family. It's fine. Here's the story about Stephanie. Stephanie went to Northwestern University in Chicago, so she's kind of a smart cookie. And she was part of this big study that was featured in the Atlantic magazine a couple of years ago about kids who grew up going to church, kids who grew up in environments just like the one we're creating right over there, learning and growing. And then when they got to college, they just said, you know, this isn't for me anymore. This being a part of a church, this connecting with God's family. I'd, I'd see it differently. I don't think I need to be a part of it anymore. So they left church. Stephanie's church, according to her, proclaimed a lot of really good things. She would say that when she was growing up, she heard about things like social justice, like being involved in the community, like doing good works. So why walk away from the church? Why, why have a problem with that? As she puts it, there is a disconnect. The quote that she offers is this, the connection between Jesus and a person's life was not clear. It was not clear. Now, just pause and kind of hold that with me for a moment. That's, that's something we can kind of easily move on from. But I have felt the weight of that this week, and I kind of want all of us to feel the weight of that statement for a minute. The connection between Jesus and a person's life was not clear. It's not clear by the way that we live our lives, that there is something different about us. If we say we follow Jesus Christ, what is different? What's the evidence of that transformation that he talks about that? The article goes on to continue that Stephanie seems to have understood that the church does not simply exist to address social ills, but to proclaim the teachings of its founder, Jesus Christ, and their relevance to the world. Since Stephanie did not see that connection, she saw little incentive to stay connected to the church. Now, we'll come back to this article in a little while and Stephanie's story and the stories of some of the other college students they talked to. I bring it up this morning because we're talking about the verb go, and go is one of the G's that we're using as a way to identify what we're about as a church. So if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what disciples do, gather, grow, go, and give. This is week three. We're talking about go. And I, I know in talking about go, this is true in my heart, it is really easy to miss the point. The point is not get out there and do a bunch of stuff, because look at what happened in Stephanie's life. Just going out and doing a bunch of stuff, disconnected and divorced from who Jesus is, isn't the thing that we're after. We're a task-oriented crowd. We like project management. We like schedules. We like timelines. And so from my own tendency toward that, I want to back us all off for just a minute and talk about something different. I want to talk about go as a way to have a winsome and gracious public faith that connects the dots. That's a theme we're going to come back to again and again this morning. My theory is in going and being a part of what God is doing in the world, through mission, through outreach, through service, we're not just doing stuff. We're helping convey a picture of what Jesus has called his people to be and helping other people connect the dots to what life with him could be like. Help people connect the dots between what we do and the message of Jesus. If you want to have a definition for the word go for the morning, there it is. Help people connect the dots between what we do here at home with Jesus and the message of Jesus. This is crucial. We are all connected to people who would say, ah, that's great that you spend time at church. I 
I don't know what I would want to do that for. As I was driving out of my neighborhood this morning, I saw one of my neighbors loading up some really tricked out mountain bikes onto the back of his car. And I'm like, what him to come to church? What, what would I have to offer him? What would I say would be a reason to say, do mountain biking on Saturday, come to church on Sunday? That's an open question. I don't have an answer for it. But I think connecting the dots between the way we live our lives, the actions and activities God calls us to, and the reality of Jesus Christ is critical of that. So what we're going to talk about today is that we're all called to do this, to go in some way, shape, or form. And the two postures that we take as we do that are outlined in your bulletin, to bless others unconditionally and to proclaim the kingdom of God. And this is all within the larger framework of what we've been talking about over the last few weeks of being a home. We've used the analogy of home to describe our life together. When we're home, we gather, grow, go, and give. And home for us is not a place. It's this network of relationships. It's looking around at the people around you and going, you are part of my home where Jesus Christ is the head and we are here together with him. This is home. And we want to grow our home and we, we want to invite people into our home. And what I'm going to try to prove today is that connecting the dots between action and what we believe is crucial to that. So we're also going to talk about justice today, biblical justice. That's actually going to be a time that we spend in prayer later on, is holding out those things that are going on in God's world that we need to go toward. And if that's a new thing for you, if that's a challenging thing for you, I totally understand. Just want to say that justice is an invitation to work in being a just God is always a conversation. It's always something we want to help people step into. And so if that's where you're coming from today, I welcome that conversation. So let's talk about the first part of the text today. This is outlined in your bulletin. It's the scripture that Bree read for us, Ephesians 2.10. I'm going to read it from the NIV translation for us. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. If you want to summarize that, just write the word identity. This is our identity. Out of this, people who follow Jesus Christ go and do the work of the church. I want to zero in on that term handiwork for just a minute. Handiwork. Handiwork. We are his workmanship. We live in a time when things that are handcrafted have a lot of value. Your latte was handcrafted. The bag that you carry with you to go to work is handcrafted. That is a mark of distinction. Every one of us has that mark of distinction by being made in the image of God. The Greek word for handiwork is poema, which sounds a lot like the English word poem, and it does mean a work or a creation or something creative, something artist, uh, tied to artistry. So turn to the person next to you and say to them, you are a work of art. You are a work of art. If you don't know them, say, introduce yourself. You're sitting by yourself, stand out of hand. You're a work of art. You are you're a work of art. If it's your spouse, you can say it with a little like, uh-huh, you're a work of art. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. And we've talked about this reality before. I think we're all fairly familiar with it. But why? Why would God want to make individual works of art that reflect his glory, that show how good and wonderful he is because of the second part of the Ephesians passage? The Ephesians passage goes like this. We are God's handiwork. We are God's works of art created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. The translation of good works is actually really accurate. It's just good works. There's not really another way to nuance or finesse that. In the context of the wider message of Scripture, though, works are whenever we look at Jesus. 
Whenever we look at what Jesus did and how he treated people, that's our benchmark for saying, okay, am I doing a good work right now or not? Yes, if you're doing something in the way Jesus did it with the people that he did his good work with. We talked about this last week when we talked about growing and being apprenticed to Jesus Christ. Part of what's offered to us when we say yes to Jesus Christ is the chance to learn from the master craftsman, to be drawn into his skills, to learn to do the things that we do in our lives like the way Jesus did everything in his life. That's our goal when we talk about discipleship, when we talk about being in groups and in mentoring together. So image bearing, being God's handiwork, being God's told your neighbor about, is our identity, and out of that identity, we're called to go do good works. Image bearing is inextricable from active care and concern for others. So do this with your hands. You ready? Fingers together, lock them in. Doing good works is inextricable from being an image bearer. If you are made in the image of God, which is all of us, this is the connection that we have to good works. You can unlink your fingers now. About a year ago, when we started to connect with Paradise Baptist Church, we began to experience this a little bit with their congregation. This is a historically African-American church in Rainier Beach. We're going to go worship with them again on November 5th. I invite you all to come. We've been growing in our relationship together. One of the things that has been happening as this has been happening, and I don't know if this has been true for all of us, but it's been true for me, I'm paying a lot more attention when something happens in Paradise's neighborhood. When something in the news pops up about Rainier Beach, Rainier Ave, just kind of that end of town, which I honestly would not know that much about, I pay just a little bit more attention to it. And I know some of you do too. Some of you may remember about six months ago, one of the matriarchs at Paradise lost her grandson, her adult grandson. He was killed in a shooting, in a violent act, and it impacted their community, obviously, in a tremendous way. This is a, a little church, with, and if someone experiences a loss in that community, everybody feels that loss. Well, we, in our coming together, in our intertwining with paradise, felt that loss too. We felt it. I felt it. Act care and concern for others. The good works that are inextricable when we are made in the image of God took on a new depth. Because if paradise was mourning... We could come beside them in that morning, and we did. We prayed for them. We prayed for their community. We prayed for the young man and the family that he left behind. We prayed for his grandmother. I called Pastor Kindred and said, how's, how's she doing? These are things that the people of God step into because we are made in the image of God because, and because being tied up with stuff that the rest of the world would say, you know what, there are people that would say this. Just don't worry about Rainier. Let Rainier worry about Rainier. That's not your problem. That's not your responsibility. In Jesus Christ, when we know people, when we're in relationship with them, I don't think we have permission to say that. I think we have the opportunity to say, tell us what your community needs. Tell us what we can pray for. Tell us what burdens you guys in a particular way. And they can ask that of us. And they are starting to ask that of us. And so that's why at the end of our sermon time together, we're going to pray for Paradise and for Rainier. We're going to pray because it is one of those places that the larger world would say, don't worry about it. It's a violent act down there that happens all the time. It's just part of the deal. And we say no. We say what happens down there does matter to God because God cares about every square inch of his creation because it all belongs to him. And every person down there belongs to him. And so because of our identity, we are linked together with the people of paradise. So that's 
kind of how we get into this. That's the identity piece. How does that play out in real life, though? It plays out in two different ways. The first way is by blessing others unconditionally. We live in such a transactional world. We live with utter expectation that if I can find a different vendor for the item that I want at a cheaper price, I will take my stuff and go over there. There isn't a or loyalty or fidelity in a transactional environment, and that's okay. That's free market capitalism. We're all beneficiaries of that. It's not perfect, but there it is. We get into big problems when we apply that rationale to this, to being in relationship with other human beings. I have a friend, a secular friend, and I love him, but I'm not kidding you. He said this to me one time. He said, I want a return on my social investments. And I was like, why are we friends? <laughs> like, what am, I, what am I supposed to be giving to you? Like, what? I want a return on my social investments. I think he perfectly summarizes the way a lot of people look at the world. Blessing other people unconditionally just holds out a hand against that in a different way to treat people. We won't read the whole text, but John 4 is an amazing illustration of this. This is the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman at the well. And what I want to do is just do a really quick overview of that text so we can see how Jesus is drawn into blessing her unconditionally by doing a lot of things that would have been very scandalous at the time. So Jesus is coming into town. He's traveling around the country with his disciples. They go through kind of a rougher part of town, maybe a little analogous to Rainier Beach. He's tired because he's fully God and fully human. He can feel the things we feel. And he sits down to rest at the well, and he sends off his 12 disciples to go find food because you've got to send 12 guys to go find food. Like, they're just not going to make it unless you send 12 of them. And even though heard, because he's God, he knows what's coming. He knows he's supposed to have this conversation with this woman who shows up at noon, which is telling. And when he speaks to her, he breaks every single rule in the social playbook. He is the bull in the china shop at the cocktail party, just like, whoa, you, like, we don't even know what to do with you here. He is a holy man. He's a rabbi. He's not supposed to speak to women, and he's certainly not supposed to speak to women in the absence of other men. That just wouldn't have been okay culturally. She's a Samaritan, so a mixed-race group of people that Jews typically would not have liked very much. She's coming to get water in the middle of the day. I mentioned that a moment ago, and this is so fascinating. Most scholars believe that because she was going to get water, she did so to avoid the sneering and the condescension of the other women in town who came and got water in the morning. She came and went. She came and got water at that time of the day because she was despised by her peers and as in, we see in the conversation she has with Jesus, because of her track record, because of her history, because she's had multiple husbands, and the man she's with now isn't her husband. She's socially ostracized. And you know what Jesus does? I love this. This is the unconditional blessing. He doesn't show up and ask her to recite the Apostles' Creed. He doesn't ask her to agree to a series of statements. He just shows up, and he sits with her, and they have this meandering kind of conversation for all of us is, who needs you to show up this week? Like, I'm at my best in my parenting when I stop running around, cleaning up my house, doing whatever I think is actually being helpful and usually isn't being helpful, and I'm just with my wife or I'm with my kids. I show up for them. Who needs you to show up for them this week? Who needs you to show up like Jesus showed up for the woman and just is with her? If you read their dialogue, you do not get the sense that there's a transaction happening. The woman at the well is not interested in finding another rabbi down the street. Like, well, I didn't like what that rabbi had to say, so I'm going to go listen to this guy. Maybe he's a little bit better. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 4, 
And we're going to read this dialogue, which is just so fascinating. John chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. They've talked about the kingdom. They've talked about uh, the end of time. And it says this, The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Will you say that with me? I am he. That is his unconditional blessing. She is waiting for Messiah. She's waiting for the one who's going to bring all things into fruition, make all things new. And she has nothing to offer him. She has no resources. She has the water. But as we'll see later on, she even leaves that. He gives so generously with those words, I am he, because those words are the pivot point for any human life. When you hear Jesus saying to you, Judy, I am he, I have come for you. When you hear Jesus saying to you, Jared, I am he, I have come for you. Everything else turns. Everything else changes. The light that is shining when Jesus Christ steps into our lives drowns out all of the distractions and all of the noise, and it becomes the one thing And this woman receives the one thing. I'm the one you've been waters, real worship, freedom from the pain and the brokenness and the terrible way that she's been treated by all these people in her life. It's all there, and he takes her in that moment. And he says, I'm he, I'm here for you. Did she earn it? Did she deserve it? Jesus gave it regardless, and her life takes on a completely new trajectory because of this unconditional blessing. It's an incredible story, and it illustrates a couple of things for us. First of all, when we think about our home, when we think about this home that God is building here at Bethany, when we gather and when we grow and go and give, we've got to remember that home's just messy. Home, messy, being in relationship with with each other. We miss emails, we miss texts, we miss phone calls. It's just messy, but we persevere. We hang in there together because God has called this church together for a reason. And even though we are in some ways a baby church, maybe even a toddler church, we are not going to be that way forever. We are heading in an incredible direction. Sometimes I feel like we're on the roller coaster and we're about to just crest right down that hill and get into some amazing stuff. And I see that ahead for us. And God is calling us to this messiness, this complicated set of relationships all around us because, as we see in the conversation with the woman at the well, when that conversation happens around Jesus, amazing things start to happen. And communities start to be transformed. That's one thing that we notice. Secondly, we notice that Jesus shows how important it is to notice people who are hurting. Notice people who are hurting. So simple, so easy to blow off. We notice someone who's in pain. He comes beside this woman, and he doesn't just kind of sit next to her. He moves toward her. He engages her in conversation. Sometimes that's costly. Sometimes we're not in a position where we feel like we can do that. But what if this week we all tried to err on the side of just stepping towards someone who's hurting and just being present with them? Jesus also shows us the value of crossing social divides. All the things that should have kept him and this woman apart, he says, as the blessing I'm here to give her. I am the Messiah. And that's that connecting the dots thing. Remember we talked about that with the college student. He is helping her connect the dots. He's not just crossing social divides because that's what he's supposed to do or just you know for any sort of belief system. He's doing it 
because she needs a clear picture of who he is so her life will be changed. He shows up for her, he crosses social divides, and her world's transformed. At Bethany, we have a partnership with a network of churches in the nation of Rwanda, in East Africa. And we work with World Relief, and the mission that World Relief is there to do is to help churches cross social divides between different people and tribes and get together so they can bless their communities. Now think about what we know of Rwanda. We know Rwanda of a place of violence and pain and genocide not that long ago. And think about how unconditional blessing, about churches coming together to bless their communities, to take care of the poor, to feed the hungry. Imagine what that does in a place with that history. And imagine what we could do here. I think it's incredible. And we're going to pray for our friends in Rwanda in just a moment. So, this is our identity, to step into mission. We've got to bless people unconditionally, no strings attached. And we get to declare God's kingdom. We get to declare the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? We've talked about the kingdom of God before. In the day that Jesus was alive, the kingdom that the Jews would have been familiar with was the coming kingdom when God comes and all things are set right and he vanquishes all the enemies of God and that's what they were expecting. The Jews also knew the kingdom of the Roman Empire. And we talked about that last week, an empire unparalleled in its tyranny and oppression and violence. So there's the kingdom of fear and pain that's all around the people of Israel right now. And then there's God's kingdom, where his rule and reign are unmistakable, where things are happening like they're supposed to happen, and we see it when Jesus touches people's lives. So let's look at this gospel to help illustrate this. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke uh, chapter 10 for just a moment. In Luke 10, Jesus sends out 70 leaders into the wider community. He's got his 12. Now they're starting to build the next circle of leaders. Leadership is replication. And he sends them out with a mission that is two parts. This is in Luke chapter 10, verse 9. He says this, Cure the sick who are there and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. So it's like they have a two-part mission. They have a responsibility to cure and care for the sick and then to connect the dots, to help them see a picture of what God is doing. Now, Jesus sent all these people to medical school, right? To go out and cure the sick. He had them go through like field training and like make sure they had like all the important kits and you know, all the things that they would need, right? No, he explicitly says to them, don't take anything. Bring nothing with you in which you can put confidence except your confidence in me. Go out there and do supernatural acts of healing, which in this day and age, any kind of healing would have been remarkable. Any kind of recovery from illness or injury would have been just like, wow, like that never happens. You're usually going to be infirm for a long time after something happened to you. But in Jesus' world, real healing can happen. Why would Jesus send out all these untrained people, these unequipped folks, to go do something remarkable in the world to demonstrate that there's power beyond them? Every one of us has that same access to power through Jesus Christ. And it's not power for ourselves. It's not power for building ourselves up. It is power to heal the sick and to proclaim the kingdom of God. Healing is always an analogy to the kingdom because the kingdom is where stuff gets set right. If you want to see an act of the kingdom in your world, fix something that's broken. Fix something that God calls you toward that is broken. 
And you don't have to fix the whole thing. You don't have to re-engineer the whole system. But just taking steps to help it is wrong. You may have seen earlier in our pre-service slides that we're taking up uh, peanut butter and jelly this month for our partnership with Pantry Packs. Pantry Packs' mission is so simple. It is to feed hungry kids. There are kids all throughout Lake Washington schools who go home every weekend, and they're not going to have a reliable source of food. It's just not there. And so every kid in Lake Washington schools can take home a backpack or a bag filled with non-perishable food to help them have something to eat through the weekend. Feeding hungry kids. Is it fixing the larger problem? Maybe, over time. But is it helping take care of a kid for a weekend? Absolutely. That is the kingdom of God. That is taking something that is broken and saying, doesn't have to be this way. God does not want kids to be hungry. And I love that we have a heart and that we have a team of leaders behind this partnership. And I can't wait to see what God does with that. In doing that, we can help people connect the dots. The 70 go out to declare something real. They use healing as a way to say, like, look, we have the power to do this. We're not kidding around. But they also have a calling to help people understand why that healing comes. It doesn't come from themselves. It comes from Jesus. And the challenge within this text is really fitting for all of us. It comes up in Luke 10, too, right at the beginning, when Jesus is sending all these people out, these untrained people to do healings, he says this, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about fear. He's talking about crossing social divides that might make somebody uncomfortable. Every person I've ever talked to who has kind of come to me with this question, hey, I love Christ, I want to serve Christ, I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing. When I talk to my neighbors, when I talk to my pagan colleagues, like anything like that, I'm afraid I'll say the wrong thing, I'm afraid I'll offend someone. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I get it. I don't have all the right answers. I do not have a 50-point thing to kind of help explain someone why faith in Jesus Christ matters. I think the harder message to focus in on, though, is not showing up to something unprepared. Because what did Jesus do with those 70 disciples? He sent them out utterly unprepared. And did they return discouraged? No, the text tells us in verse 17 they returned with joy because of how much God was doing in their midst. If you feel unprepared to talk to someone about your faith, that is the perfect time to do it. If you feel like, man, I, this person, there's no way they would be interested in the things of Jesus. There's not a chance. I, I could never invite them to help with pantry packs or when we go do something as way. Well, what if? Someone took a risk on you. Someone took a risk on me, inviting us to step into the story of Jesus Christ. And my encouragement is, and this is the hardest part of go, and I understand that this is hard, is remembering that this is not an option. If we believe what we say we believe, if we believe that there really is a place that Jesus calls people to to be with him for eternity and that there's a place that people go to that is not where we want people to go, then it's essentially relational malpractice not to care about that person's connection to Jesus Christ. And we go. In our going, not necessarily in our arguing perfectly, our rationale for faith, but in our going, in our showing up, who's hurting, and being with people like the women at the woman at the well who are on the margins, we are showing up, and in those moments, don't you think that the Holy Spirit can be there and say, I got words for you to share. 
you don't even, you don't even need to know that I'm, I'm employing you for this, but I got words for you. And you can make it happen. Another college student that was interviewed in that Atlantic article said a very interesting critique. And this was just hard to read, but I share it, I think, in a hopeful way. Michael, a political science major at Dartmouth, told us that he is drawn to Christians who take the Bible seriously. Even though he'd say he's not a Christian anymore, he's drawn to Christians who take the Bible seriously, who want to be about the scriptures. This I can't really consider a Christian to be a good moral person if they're not trying to convert me. If they're not trying to have the conversation, to engage me in the subject that they say they claim the most about, I'm not sure I respect them. Now, that is a hard word. That is a hard word for me because I back off all the time from conversations or from opportunities to be truthful about what I believe. And I'm not saying we all need to rush out and go figure this out right now, but I think we need to be aiming at a target like that. And I think it's our calling, and I think there are a lot of ways to do that not just in talking, not just in preaching, in going and being with the poor, going and connecting with people from another group, from another Mars. If we say we're about justice, if we say we're about caring for the poor and crossing social divides, then we can go with confidence and we can go knowing that our job is just to help people connect the dots and see Jesus' presence in their midst. And I would argue that the first steps toward what this young man was talking about toward being able to invite people into the conversation about Jesus Christ is not readiness in study, it's readiness in prayer. And so that's why we're going to take time and pray in just a minute. So we've learned that everyone in our home, this is our home in Jesus Christ. We are on mission. We are seeking to bless others unconditionally, to proclaim the kingdom of God. And I want to give us what this can do in the world. If I could have the slide up of the cover of Christianity Today. There's a story in Christianity Today from a couple months ago about Cambodia. Cambodia used to be the center of human trafficking and sex trafficking for that part of the world. It used to be one of the darkest places on earth for people who wanted to participate in that, for children to be abducted and used for terrible things. It was the beating heart at the center of the global sex industry. 15 years ago, something started to change. A group of Christians, people who followed Jesus Christ, who wanted to connect the dots to their faith, showed up in Cambodia, started to pray. One of them that's interviewed in this article said that every time they faced opposition, they would pray Romans 12, 12. And I've been praying this a lot lately too. Be joyful in hope, persevere in suffering, be faithful in prayer. Can you imagine that? Just stepping in to take down brothels to prosecute people who are doing terrible things and praying that prayer, going with fear, not going out of fear, but going with your fears to do the thing that God has called you to do. And the amazing thing that's happened in Cambodia in the last 15 years is that 80% of the sex trafficking industry has wilted and died. It's gone away. Because of the work who people, of people who believe that we can go and do something, that a country can be changed, that Cambodia can be on the rise, not in the rise of evil as it used to be a part of, but in the rise of people being free and treated like they're supposed to be treated. When people experience Jesus' majestic work in justice and sending his people out into the community to go and connect the dots and to be unapologetic about Jesus Christ as the one who sent us, he is the one that calls us to set slaves free, then things change. 
and a change for the woman at the well. The end of the story is she put aside her water jar. That thing that she came to the well to do, to get water, whoever, for the guy that wasn't even her husband, she stopped doing that and she immediately went out and gave testimony. She went into the world and started to tell people about Messiah. She gets it. She gets it. And when we go, when we follow her example, we can see the world transformed like Cambodia has been transformed. We can see our world change so that kids don't go home on the weekends hungry anymore. I believe we can be a part of that. So here's our response. I'm going to give us some instructions. And we were going to do something we haven't ever really done before here, but I know if you've been a part of Bethany, we've done this in other places. I want us to turn our chairs around and face three or four people. Just get into groups of three or fours. Okay? You can do that right now. Get into groups of three or four and introduce yourselves. And I'll give you a few more instructions. Threes and fours, perfect. Introducing yourselves, even better. So you got an insert in your bulletin that has a few prayers on there. It says prayers uh, for peace and justice at the top. Now, I want to offer this too, because this, this is going to be a muscle that may be hard for some to use. If you don't have uh, one of those prayer cards, let us know and we can bring If you just want to listen, you can totally do that right? The goal is not to get through everything on the prayer card. The goal is not for everybody to pray if you don't want to pray, but I hope you will pray. And if you want to just tell your group like, hey, I'd just like to listen today, that is totally fine. Just make sure they know that. If you'd like to pray, I would invite you to have a conversation just over this prayer card and just say, let's pick one and let's just pray for that together. You can use those exact words. You can use your own words. If you have something that's kind of been pressing into you that you would like to pray for, you can do that now. I would encourage us to pray for one of those three different paragraphs on the sheet. Just one or two people pray for that, those concerns on there. And then just close. Just say, in Jesus' name, amen. And then you can move on, or you can just keep going. But pick a section, pray for that section, go through that. The goal is not to get through all three. We've got about four or five minutes where we're going to do this. Bree and I are going to keep an eye on the time. And what our hope is, is that we will go and enact the message of the scriptures today, and that our hearts will be changed by the enactment of these words in prayer. So let me pray for us, and then we'll begin our prayers in groups. Jesus, thank you for what you have done around the world, and we ask that in these moments where we're praying, where we're getting into these smaller expressions of your community, that you would shape us, and that these prayers, which you treasure so much, would be the fuel for our part in the work you have called your people to do. It's the work of transformation, of justice, of treating other people the way you think they deserve to be treated. Bless this time we now have together. We ask in your name. Amen. All right, friends, feel free to pray. Thanks.